I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 21. Matthew 21. We've been approaching this chapter in the context of Jesus' final week before he goes to the cross. Somewhere between Tuesday and Wednesday is where we find ourselves with Jesus in the temple. We're going to be looking at a paragraph uh, marked verses 23 through 27, which is kind of a series of paragraphs that I have put under the banner of the rejection of Christ, this sentiment of rejection where Jesus comes into Jerusalem as Messiah, Israel's Messiah, as a Jew to the Jews, and the Jews are the ones who are again and again in discourse with Jesus, rejecting him, rejecting him, rejecting him. The devolving rejection of Christ. And it can be discouraging to see what happened to Jesus because we know that he's our model, he's our example in terms of what to do, how to be, but he's also our example in terms of how he's treated, we will be treated. So we can learn from him, even through kind of a sobering topic of rejection, how to be rejected. It's like, this is not your uh, positive thinking, you know, sort of motivational sermon. This is, how do you walk through a world that's filled with sin, that increasingly is finding Christ distasteful and even offensive, and Christians are distasteful and Christians are offensive? How do we walk through this world and do it in a way that glorifies God when we're going to be rejected, our message is going to be rejected again and again? Let me frame it a different way. Let me make it really practical. This is my true opener. If it's impossible to break through and get through to someone who is, as Ephesians 2 says, dead in their trespasses and sins, 2 Corinthians 4 says, Satan has blinded the minds of an unbeliever. All unbelievers are blinded. 1 Corinthians 2 says, the natural man cannot perceive the things of the Spirit of God. So we're talking to people who are dead, blind, and unperceptive to the gospel. So why would we ever share Christ with someone like that? Why do it? It can be a really discouraging thing. The answer to the question is simply this. We just share with people like Jesus shared with people. We just do what he did. Speak the truth the way he spoke it. You say, well, that's a pretty big, you know, sort of high bar standard to be like Jesus and to speak like Jesus, but we're just supposed to speak the truth in love, practically speaking, with the mindset that we are coming as Christ's ambassador, we're coming with the Holy Spirit inside of us, and we're able to, as Romans 13 says we're able to put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh. We're literally able to put on Christ, be Jesus to people by speaking truth. If you think about it, Jesus, when he spoke to people, even his accusers, he would often reference the Bible. Remember when he was attacked by Satan three times with three mega temptations? He was 40 days in the wilderness not eating food, fasting in the wilderness, completely defenseless, having to vindicate and validate his messiahship, comes under attack. And when Satan tempts him to make food out of 
stones, to throw himself off the temple, to bow down to all the kingdoms, to Satan to receive all the kingdoms of the world. He just quotes Deuteronomy over and over again. It is written, man shall not live by bread alone. You know, don't put the Lord to the test. Don't presume upon God. Worship God alone. He quotes Old Testament scripture. The Greek word graphe, it is written, it is written, it is written. As Christians, we can speak the truth to people in love. And watch this. We can leave the results to what happens when we speak the truth in love to God. That's, that's Jesus' modus operandi. He is, as one person put it, imperturbable. He just walked through life relying on the Holy Spirit, following the Father's will, quoting the word of God so that people would stumble over him by stumbling over the truth. If we present ourselves to people and say, hey, believe because I believe, or you're attacking me and I'm kind of offended and I don't like this, you're making me feel uncomfortable. If we make awkward exchanges about us, people will stumble over us instead of stumbling over Christ. We want people to see Christ and see the truth and be offended by Jesus, not offended by us. It's hard to do. I mean, Jesus grounded everything he did in the truth. Ultimately, when he was attacked by the Pharisees in John 8, 31 and 32, he said to the Jews who believe, if you abide in my word or stick in my word, you're my true disciples. And he says, and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. He made everything about the truth. If you abide in truth, you're in. If you know the truth, you'll be free. Even by him saying that in John 8, those Pharisees were offended saying, we're not, we're not needing to be freed of anything. What are, you, what are you saying? We need to be free. And this is how our culture talks. Well, what are you saying? I'm enslaved to anything. What are you talking about? And Jesus brought the truth to bear on people's lives and they had to contend with that in their own hearts. One person put it this way. We don't fight people, we fight for truth. Don't fight people, fight for truth. Jesus is called the scandalon, the stumbling block. When you fight for truth, people will see Jesus and they will receive him or they will stumble over him as the stone of stumbling. 1 Peter 2.8, a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. It's heavy. Word ministry is heavy, it's weighty, and these conversations that you will have that God has prepared for you to have, where you are a witness for Christ because people don't like your witness, they don't like what you're saying, or they're interested in what you're doing or not doing, these are high stakes conversations that you have to be ready for, and you got to be ready to deliver the truth like Jesus did. You say, how can I do that? How can I find the confidence to do that? You need to understand that God behind the scenes sets up scenarios where you can talk about him and then you can rely on him as the physician of the soul. He's, he's the great physician and you're the attending physician. You deliver the word and then you let God decide what he's doing inside someone's heart, either opening it or at, the, at a certain point, maybe closing it. These are... Hard conversations, but we can follow Jesus' lead on how he did it. Now, the text, the flow of John 21 from verses 12 and following is setting up 
these exchanges where Jesus is, is really pointing out two kinds of people, people who reject Christ and people who receive Christ. It's five devolving rejections and five hopeful receptions. We've gone through the first one was racketeers, those who were scam artists in the temple. That was verses 12 through 16 versus the innocents, those who were coming in the aftermath, being healed and following Jesus. Point two is apostates versus believers, verses 17 through 22. This is the fig tree incident where Jesus cursed the fig tree, calling out the hypocrisy of Israel. They looked healthy on the outside, but there was no fruit on the inside, and so he upended the tree and it withered. He's basically saying the Israelites are apostate. And now he's calling out the religious leaders in the temple again when he, when he comes back to the temple. And this is the two groups called the frauds and the authentic. The frauds versus the authentic. Listen as I read our section, verses 23 to 27. And when he entered the temple, the chief priests and the elders of the people came up to him as he was teaching and said, By what authority are you doing these things, and who gave you this authority? And Jesus answered them, I also will ask you one question. And if you tell me the answer, then I also will tell you by what authority I do these things. The baptism of John, where did it come? From heaven or from man? And they discussed it among themselves, saying, If we say from heaven... He will say to us, why then did you not believe him? But if we say for man, we are afraid of the crowd, for they all hold that John was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, we do not know. And he said, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. This is Jesus' MO. This is his way of addressing his accusers. He's winning them. He's working to see the outcome, but he's leaving it in the Father's hands with what's going to happen. Let's see how he does it. First of all, the context here is one where these chief priests, you can see this in the text, and the elders are coming to Jesus as he's teaching. He's probably in the temple, maybe on Solomon's porch or the Solomon's portico, as it's been called, the place where Peter will later heal people in Acts chapter 5. Jesus is presenting, teaching probably to thousands of people in the court of Gentiles. It's in the aftermath of Jesus having sort of, you know, displaced hundreds and thousands of people out of the temple. He, he kicked them out because they were doing, you know, money changing and scam artist work and And they were shaming the temple. It should have been a house of prayer. It should have been a call of evangelism to the nations during the the feast of Passover. All of these things should have been happening. And the temple was just a complete um, blight on God's glory. And so Jesus moved everybody out. Remember, it would be like the court of Gentiles is like a stadium with like, you know, the SEC conference with like, 70,000 people in it, and Jesus moved them out and up into tables and kicked out the money changers. It was a massive event, and in the aftermath of this, Jesus is back Tuesday, Wednesday, midweek, teaching God's word. So as he's teaching, the chief priest and the elders see that their authority is being challenged. They're losing their place. Jesus has upended their their scam artist um, shop, and... um, 
and their place of power, and so they want to take it back. So they're confronting Jesus, I think, publicly in a way that is to shame him to get their power back. So Christ's question that he's to answer is, where'd you get the power to do what you just did? I mean, they've accused Jesus of getting his power from Beelzebul, the Pharisees did, committing the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, where that's the point of no return. Jesus has condemned Israel as being hypocritical by cursing the fig tree, a picture of judgment that will come on apostate Israel. They're a bad witness, and they are trying to basically get Jesus out of here because he is making these condemnations on them. They're uncomfortable with Jesus. They don't like him. Jesus is hate speech in the culture. Sound familiar? They don't like what he stands for. Jesus is now not beloved like he was when he first came in. He's up into the temple and now he's standing there and teaching on top of what he's done. By the way, they can't deny his power. That that was a Samson-like power display for him to upend the temple. Plus, he was healing people that were coming to him in the aftermath. He was being praised. He's teaching in power and authority. So they're not denying that something's powerful, but they're trying to undermine the origination of that power. Where does it come from? Where does it come from? They're trying to create doubt. John 2, 18, he had already cleansed the temple once with a whip that he had created. And they said, what did this sign mean? That's what the Jews were asking. So he's had a testimony of power, but they're undermining its origin. So what what does Jesus do? There's always two bases of authority. And it's so important for you to understand this as we witness in a world that will become increasingly hostile. The two bases of authority are this, either it's from God, you're either speaking for God or you're speaking for yourself. It's God or self. You can say, how could I relate to an evangelism, you know, evangelistic scenario where Jesus is in a temple? I don't plan to go to the Mormon tabernacle later on this afternoon. I'm not going to go to some cult group or some situation and set myself up for something like this. Well, let me say it this way. Anytime you're talking to anyone who, is, who does not know Christ, They are a worshiper of self. So there's two religions. There's worship of self, either formal worship of self where you're trying to work your way to heaven. There's all kinds of formal false religions that people do that or just secular humanism. People worship themselves. They're trying to self-actualize. They're trying to climb their way into heaven by do-gooding or being this person that they believe is worthy of eternal life. Secular humanism, it's been defined as a non-religious worldview rooted in science, philosophical naturalism, human ethics, humanistic ethics, or rely, instead of relying on faith or doctrine, secular humanists use compassion and critical thinking and human experience to find solutions to human problems. In other words, worshiping your own brain, worshiping your own ingenuity, worshiping your own artistry, worshiping your own engineering skills. This is what people are trying to find their identity through, their skills, their gifts, their perceived talents, and they worship it. People pad that for their own well-being. And anytime you say, listen, we're born sinners, and we're born in a sin-cursed world, and we need a savior to even be saved for heaven. It's nothing that I can do to save myself. 
I can only persevere through a sin-cursed world, through the trials and the suffering and the situations that I go through by the grace of God. He helps me every day of my life. He is my master. I am his slave. You talk in language like this, and you are in a situation like Jesus was with the chief priests and the elders in the world we live in today. And it's as potent, and it's as powerful, and the stakes are eternal for what you say and do not say. So how do we pull this off? We got to follow it like Jesus did. We got to understand that we are in this world to be an ambassador. And the pressure is on God's word doing the work, not on you pulling it off. I was in... um, with a friend of mine who's, who's visiting today, we went and visited Kingdom Air, Air um, Corp, which is a missions, a bush pilot missions um, sending sort of zone and training zone in Chickaloon, Alaska. So jumped on a plane, went out of Merrill Field, um, kind of got blasted up into the clouds, saw Denali lit up that morning. It was amazing. Flew over Palmer, kind of through the mountains, and suddenly landing on a grass runway, Indiana Jones style, bouncing in, you know, into this um, Kingdom Airport um, situation. Had a blast. They fed us well. We're in the lodge, you know, with um, 20 bush pilots and family and friends and camp, you know, environment. And they do all kinds of things where they land on gravel pads and, and people from all over the world will come and get training, you know, from the lower 48, but also like Russia. Somebody was calling in from Africa because it's niche training to learn how to do bush pilot work that can translate other places in the world. And the the lead of that of Kingdom Airport is um, is um, Dwayne King, and he's 80 years old. So he's up there, and he's introducing me. I'd given one devotional earlier about how the Word of God's got to do the work. We need expositors in villages, et cetera, et cetera. We're here to offer help. Um, so that was one speech, and then 15 of the bush pilots showed up to a house later on, give or take it, maybe 10, in a living room, and Dwayne's introducing me. And he says, listen... We've sent a bush pilot before to a village. He was prepared at some level, but he wasn't prepared for what would happen. He got up and he was ready to preach on a Sunday morning in this um, open setting. And the superintendent of the school of the area, which those are very powerfully positioned people with uh, education and school, he was a self-pronounced pastor. And that guy had the sermon before the sermon moment where he got up in the introduction and preached a sermon on the woke gospel. Now, at that point, Dwayne King looks at me, 80 years old, and I'm sitting there, and I'm ready to to speak or interact, and he says, Jeff, why don't you just define for us what woke means? So I'm like, oh, okay. You know, I, but this is what I said. I just said, the, the woke world is a victim culture. It depends on who's defining it and what they mean by what they're saying, but it's a victim culture where people believe that elitist in and privileged people in the world have suppressed other people to where they are victims of this and they feel like everybody owes them and they aren't someone who wants to work. It's the excuse to laziness. It's the, it's the excuse to not work and being unwilling to work. But I would also say this. There's nothing new on this, under the sun. I grew up with cultures like this. It's just labeled woke now. Um, it, it, the Bible says if you don't work, you don't eat. The accountability to work, the accountability to believe 
that God is the creator and we're made in the image of God is real to the world. And people want to reject that. They want to suppress that. And people want to get out of the responsibility to provide. The Bible's message is clear. And if you are bringing the word of God to bear in this woke world, people are going to say something like this. Why are you waving that Bible around in my face? Where are you coming from? Where are you coming off telling me that I am made in the image of God and I'm accountable to a creator who will judge me unless I repent of my sins? Why would you say something like that? And you have to bring scripture and speak the truth. Watch this, Ephesians 4, speak the truth in love in graciousness, with an attitude of humility, with an attitude of grace to the person, and let the word of God do the work. You're not pulling punches, you're not softening the message, but you're casting it in love and mercy so that the truth does the work, not you. Romans 13, 14, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh. When someone asks you, to, you know, give an answer. And if you go into the flesh at that moment, let me just warn you, there's so much lost in that moment. You can lose your witness in a second just by defending yourself, by believing that, you know, they are hurting you, that they're after you, that they're embarrassing you, that they're shaming you. They might be laughing at you or mocking you. All of those things are immaterial to a person who is in the Holy Spirit. When you're in a Holy Spirit frame of mind and you're trusting Christ, you just realize God has put me in this moment and I'm just delivering the truth. And whatever they say, it's not about me. It's not personal to me. And I'm just giving the word of God. And God will see you through that moment and he will either soften the heart or he'll harden the heart depending on his work and his will. So Jesus, what he does is he turns the tables on the question. So he's questioned, his authority is questioned in verse 23. And his answer in verses 24 to 27 is he's questioning the fraud's fake authority. So instead of him taking the bait and saying, yeah, it's my authority. I'm the second member of the Trinity. I am, in fact, God, very God, and I'm going to send lightning down and burn you right where you stand. Instead of him doing that, he appeals to John. Look at what he does. He turns the tables, verse 24. And Jesus answered them, I also will ask you one question. And if you tell me the answer, then I also will tell you by what authority I do these things. So he's saying, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ask a question. You ask a question, I'm going to ask a question. This is his question. The baptism of John, where did it come? From where did it come? From heaven or from man? So you're asking me where I got my authority, where I get my authority to speak what I speak? Let's talk about John. Where did he get his authority? What Jesus is doing here is he's making an appeal to truth. John is the last Old Testament prophet, it's been said. He's the fulfillment of Elijah from Malachi. He is the one who is the forerunner of Christ. He is the one whom Jesus is appealing to, basically to say, let's talk in terms of truth. Let's not make this just about me. John's 
baptism was one that was widely received by all of Jerusalem. All of Jerusalem was going out to John's baptism. It was a baptism of repentance. Jesus was saying the kingdom of God has come. Jesus was pointing, I mean, John was pointing to Jesus saying, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. So to believe in John's message, in essence, was to believe in Jesus and his message. People were defecting from the religious center. They were going out to John. And basically, Jesus was being skilled to say, Pharisees, I'm going to expose you. Chief priests, elders, I'm going to expose you because you want my authority. But the authority has already been manifest in John. And the authority is based on the truth of God. Even Jesus, who in essence himself is the authority, is pointing to the message of John the Baptist as his authority. This is what you need to do. Deflect things to the truth. Don't fight people. Fight for truth. The question is one of authority. John's authority is the same as Christ's authority. This is where Jesus wants to take people. He wants them to be face-to-face with God. Now, why does he appeal to John? Why does he just kind of take care of this with his own authority? I think it's because he's giving them grace. He's building a buffer, giving them something to think about. You know, you're coming to me. You're trying to take me down. Let's just think about John the Baptist for a minute. All of Jerusalem went out to him. All of Jerusalem is, is um, giving him the popular vote right now. He's still popular. What about his popularity? He's given them grace like we would give people grace where we would open the word of God. When somebody accuses you of something, you might do something like this. Have you ever considered a passage of scripture like, you know, God is working all things together for the good, for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. God is sovereign over all things. Have you ever considered a passage like, if you know the truth, the truth will make you free, like I quoted earlier? Have you ever considered a passage that Jesus said of himself, he's the way, the truth, and the life, no man comes to the Father but by him? So God is completely sovereign, God is completely good, and God is the open door to heaven through Christ Maybe you could read about that and we'll come back and talk, you know, talk later. Those kinds of strategic encounters with people can give people room to think. When you're talking to somebody that's confronting you, you want them to consider the message of the gospel. You make a personal attack about you and you'll lose the fight. The Bible says we're called to fight the good fight of faith. That's First and Second Timothy. Um, Paul said to Timothy, wage the good warfare. It can be translated that way. Be strategic with your mission. In Jude, it says to contend earnestly for what? Yourself? No, contend earnestly for the faith. Contend earnestly for the gospel. In 2 Corinthians 10.5, when Paul talked about being attacked, he said we are destroying speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God. We're taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. That's warfare language. So when people bring up their version of life, you're, you're basically taking that down. You're dismantling, dismantling it with truth. 
not in an evil or mean or belligerent, vindictive way, but in a way where you're just bringing people to the truth and saying, this is reality. Do you realize that the wilder things get out there in terms of what people believe about evolution, what people believe about alien life, what people believe about the microsphere, what people believe about the macrosphere, what people believe about what happens when you die, the wilder things get in terms of you know, people being transgender and different things, the more it's going to be important that we have a true grasp of reality that comes from the Bible. That will become more important. It's special to have the truth, to have the mind of Christ, to know where we came from, who's keeping us alive, who's orchestrating the circumstances around us, where we can find grace, where we can find forgiveness, where we can find the hope of eternal life. That worldview box that we have in our brain is more important today than ever before, and that's what you are fighting for. You're fighting to give people the mind of Christ, not what you think, but what the Bible thinks. That's what we're talking about. It's the truth. We fight the good fight of faith. We put on the armor of God to do that kind of work. We're not just winning people to Christ. We're bringing people to the truth and letting the truth be brought to bear where people then decide whether they're going to follow Christ or reject him, whether God is sovereignly opening the heart or sovereignly closing the heart. All of those dynamics are happening when we bring the truth to bear in people's lives. What that means for you is that you can be comforted by the fact that God is doing the work you're not screwing something up. Um, there's a, so Jesus turned the tables. He, he took it down a level by bringing up John the Baptist, but then he built a crossroad. And I want you to see this. This is an important dynamic. This is a window into the hearts of the chief priests and elders. These are, this is what's going on inside of someone when they're confronted by truth. Watch what they do. Verse 25. And they discussed it among themselves. Is John from heaven, his authority from heaven or from man? They discussed it among themselves saying, if we say from heaven, he will say to us, why then did you not believe him? But if we say from man, we are afraid of the crowd for they all hold that John was a prophet. So this is what's going on inside of them. A lot of times I think we blame ourselves for why people don't believe. I wasn't clear enough. I didn't have enough theology. Um, the timing wasn't right. My tone was bad. You know, my voice cracked or, you know, I, they had to go. I, you know, I didn't do this. I didn't do that. And oh, woe is me. They're still not a believer. But that kind of uh, self-talk is contrary to really what's going on in other people's hearts. What people are doing when you present the gospel, which is the power of God to salvation, it's potent and powerful. It's sharper than any two-edged sword. It's laying them open, even if you're going blah, 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 well, you know, and, and you're, uh, uh, um. I mean, the word of God, if it comes out, it's doing that work. And what people are doing inside is they're doing an evaluation and a calculus. Just like if you're sitting on the other end of like, you know, a loan officer and you're going, well, you know, what's the payment going to be and what's that going to mean and how many years, 15 or 30 and where will I be? All that calculus is going on spiritually in someone's heart where they're going, what is it going to mean to follow Christ? Do I really want to follow him all the way? What will I have to give up? What will I have to be like? And I'm not ready to do that. And so that's why people go, well, I'm unclear or I really don't have time for this right now. 
That's what they're doing here. They're following the logic of what Jesus is saying. If you affirm John the Baptist and his authority is from heaven, then his message is from heaven. He still had the popular vote. He still loved. And so then his message is the Messiah. And so it means that Messiah's from heaven, his authority is from heaven, and his message is true. If you take John, then you take Jesus. If you don't take John, you lose the popular vote. And that's stripping the power and authority away from the chief priests and elders, which is their whole motivation for confronting Christ in the first place. So it was genius for Jesus to say, just think about John the Baptist, because it put them on the line and exposed that really their motivation for confronting Christ was to try to save their own power and save their own authority, what so many people want. People will water down the gospel to get people in. They'll add things to the gospel to inspire people in They'll make the gospel about anything other than repentance and faith to get people in because um, people, people are definitely turned off by the truth because you have to give something away to follow Christ. You have to give your life away to follow Christ. So people say, no, you don't. You're just joining a social club. You're joining Christian nationalism. Anytime you, you marry something up with With Christianity, you're basically diluting the gospel into nothing. Hey, Save America rallies, you know, that's Christianity. Or racial reconciliation, that's Christianity. Or social gospel, you know, outreach, that's Christianity. Woke Christianity. You're going to hear all these things that people are trying to tie together with Christianity, and it loses Christ, and it loses the true gospel. It inspires people, but it strips out repentance In faith, Christ is exposing their motivations, and he's exposing a second motivation, not just their authority and their desire to keep their authority, but they're afraid of the crowd. Look at verse 26. They're afraid to follow Christ because of what the crowd will do to them. If they they reject John, then they're going to be in a bad way with the crowds. But if we say from man, we are afraid. That's the Greek word phobos of the crowd for they all hold that John was a prophet. A lot of people are afraid to follow Christ. These people are afraid to denounce John for political reasons and they are in a perplexing situation. People weren't sold on Jesus at this point, but they were fully sold on John. So what does Jesus do with this? Look at the last verse, verse 27. This is my last point, accepting a cowardice response. This is the tough thing to do. When you're evangelizing people and reaching out or being confronted and you want to win them, it's really hard to leave it alone. This is what Jesus does. Look at verse 27. So they answered Jesus, we do not know. And he said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. So if you're not going to answer my question, then I'm not going to answer your question. What Jesus is saying is, if you won't answer my question about where the authority comes from for John, then we're really not going to talk about where the authority comes from me. If you're not willing to deal with the truth and God's word, then I'm not going to have this conversation anymore. 
Because the truth is what turns the key to open someone's locked door and uncage them, or the truth that's rejected hardens a person's heart. And as long as you're working in those two realms and letting God do the work and you're just presenting truth, you can talk all day. But as soon as they're wanting to make it personal to you, they're trying to trap you, and you'll find yourself casting pearls before swine. They're doing this, they're rejecting, they're trapping, and you're giving stuff like bait to, uh, you know, bait yourself into an argument and you're just in the flesh and it's a bad witness. Jesus just leaves it where it is. They're play, these chief priests and elders are playing the coward. All they can say, because Jesus has basically put them in check or checkmate is, we don't know. Did they follow the logic of what was going on? Absolutely. Did they really know what was happening on an intellectual level? Yes. But on a moral level, they were in a dilemma because they did not want to receive Christ or reject John. Um, They didn't want to be in trouble politically, and they didn't want to follow Jesus. So they were stuck, and they did not know what to say. They were stuck. So Jesus just said, then I'm not going to entertain this anymore. This is what J.C. Ryle said about the phrase, we do not know. J.C. Ryle was an old Puritan guy. He wrote something really profound. I want you to hear it. He said, it's a melancholy fact that dishonesty like this is far from being uncommon among unconverted people. There's thousands who evade appeals to their conscience by answers which are not true. When pressed to attend to their souls, they say things which they are not, which are not correct. And they know that they're not correct. They love the world their own way. They like our Lord's enemies. They're determined not to give them up, but they like them also. And they're ashamed to say the truth. And so they answer exhortations to repentance and decision with false excuses. One man pretends that he cannot understand. I can't follow. I have no idea what you're talking about. He can't understand the doctrines of the gospel. Another assures us that he really tries to serve God, but he makes no progress. A third declares that he has every wish to serve Christ, but he has no time. This was written in the 1800s, the late 1800s. I can't understand. Hey, I'm trying really hard and I don't really have time. These are the excuses that are perennial that will be recycled over and over. All these are often nothing better than miserable equivocations. As a general rule, they're worthless as the chief priest's answer, we cannot tell or we don't know. Speaking as, um, as if an unbeliever, he says, we may be tolerably sure that when he says, I cannot, the real meaning of his heart is, I will not. The ruin of thousands is simply this, that they dishonestly deal with their own souls. They allege pretended difficulties as the cause of not serving Christ. It's too hard. Well, in reality, under the surface, they love the darkness more than they love the light and have no, dis- no honest desire to change. Who's on your heart? This isn't an open mic. I'm just asking you rhetorically, but think about it. Who's on your heart right now? Who's God laying on your heart? Who's coming after you? Where is the tension in the room in that particular relationship? Well, be like Christ. Try to give it to God. Don't try to. Give it to God 
and then walk as Christ, live as Christ, put on the Lord Jesus Christ and meet people with the truth and let the truth of the word of God do the work. Let God be the great physician. He's the one who will change the heart one way or the other. As I was writing this sermon, I was toggling back and forth with, you know, I look things up on the internet for help and illustrations. And last night, an article pops up, trans rabbi wanting people to make spiritual connection with Gen Zs. That's just on the news feed. What are we supposed to do with our world? Just love people. Be guarded with the truth. Not barriered away from people with the truth, but use the truth as a bridge. The truth will make people free. The gospel will shine lighter as the world gets darker. It will. One of the most dangerous eras in my life, I think, was when things were less hostile, more Christianized, and it was the leave it to beaver culture where everybody kind of was going to heaven through a black and white episode. I mean, you know, everything's fine. It's not fine. And the more extreme it becomes, the more of an opportunity we have to preach Christ faithfully.